This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. This is, in fact, show number 600. Sometime last summer, I'm looking forward to when this 600 show would air. I apparently miscalculated, and I thought it would be the January 2nd, 2014 show. Apparently not. And unfortunately for us, being that it's taking place the day after Christmas, when Christmas season is the toughest time to book of the entire year, we've decided to make this a regular program and have a look back at 600-plus shows sometime in January or maybe February. Mr. McMillan suggested we may want to celebrate show number 666. But you know, that's a long way away, and I'm not sure we want to stir up the crazies. So let's proceed with this, our last program of 2013. And wish all of you a happy Boxing Day. Yes, it's on all the calendars, and apparently other English-speaking nations do celebrate it. This also marks the first day of Kwanzaa a holiday invented in Los Angeles in 1966. But at any rate, no matter which holiday you're celebrating, happy holidays. We shall begin today's program, as we always do, with On This Date in History. Looking back at December 26th in 1492, Christopher Columbus founded the first Spanish settlement in the New World, La Navidad, in what is today Haiti. The native Indians eventually destroyed it. On December 26, 1825, the Erie Canal opened a great fanfare as American statesman DeWitt Clinton poured a barrel of Lake Erie water into the Atlantic Ocean. And down under, December 26, 1906, what's considered to be the world's first feature film, The Story of the Kelly Gang, premiered at the Athenaeum Hall in Melbourne, Australia. At an hour long, it is considered the first continuous film of feature length. Two years later, down under, December 26, 1908, Jack Johnson became the first African-American to win the world heavyweight title when he knocked out Tommy Burns of Canada in a fight near Sydney, Australia. Apparently, Johnson had to fight in Australia because they wouldn't let him do it in America. On December 26, 1928, Johnny Weissamiller retired from amateur swimming, having never lost a freestyle race. Yes, thank you for reminding me, Mr. Mellon. He did go on to play Tarzan in Hollywood. Also, Jungle Jim. Turned out Johnny wasn't quite as good an actor as he was a swimmer. But his Me Tarzan You Jane remains much beloved. And finally, on December 26th in 1955, in one of the most publicized cultural exchanges of the Cold War, Porgy and Bess, an opera featuring an African-American cast, opened in Leningrad in the Soviet Union received a 10-minute standing ovation. I do note with some sadness that this correspondent, uh, with the best of intentions, went to go see Porgy and Bess in San Francisco last month. And I have to note that my record of leaving the opera at intermission has now run out to a string of three. But the music is awfully good. We'll have to use it for uh, some of our bumpers. 
Our quote today comes from Marceline Cox, who said, Life begins when a person first realizes how soon it will end. Our quote of the day comes from Robert Frost, who said, The middle of the road is where the white line is, and that's the worst place to drive. For the record, radio parallax is generally not found going down the middle of the road. Our joke of the day comes from the writers for Conan O'Brien, who said last week, Yesterday, Fox News anchor Megyn Kelly told viewers that Santa Claus is white. Being Fox, of course, she then said that Santa's elves are Mexican and they're stealing jobs from American elves. All right, our anecdote of the week is as follows. You know, we do like to poke fun at our California legislators uh, on frequent occasions, but let's take a whack at the folks over in Nevada today. In 2002, the Nevada State Legislature authorized a new license plate it depicted a mushroom cloud from an atomic explosion. The design apparently was awarded first place in a competition sponsored by the Nevada Test Site Historical Foundation, symbolizing the 928 nuclear weapons test conducted in the desert from 1945 to 1992. Said a spokesman, it was meant to honor former workers of the test site. On the other hand, Denise Nelson, director of Support and Education for Radiation Victims, said... Even Germany had enough conscience not to put a gas chamber on their license plates. It was noted that in the aftermath of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks, the Nevada Department of Motor Vehicles did reject the concept, noting that any reference on a license plate to weapons of mass destruction is inappropriate and would likely offend our citizens. Our stat of the day is 90 seconds. This is uh, the amount of extra time to run a mile children need today versus what their counterparts needed just 30 years ago. According to NPR.org, children worldwide aren't as fit as their parents were. Apparently, research detailed at an American Heart Association conference, drawing upon data from 50 studies on running fitness, which is considered a key indicator of cardiovascular health and endurance, uh, involved 25 million children ages 9 to 17 in 28 different countries. They covered a time span from 1962 to 2010. Researchers say increased weight explains 30 to 70% of the shift and that lower levels of physical activity, both in organized sports and at play, account for much of the rest. The changes are similar for boys and girls and also for various ages. Health experts recommend that children six and older get 60 minutes of moderately vigorous activity a day. How many American kids manage that? About a third. Ow. And just as a bonus, quote, quip, joke, uh, we have Candida Moss in the Daily Beast asking again, is the Pope Catholic? In view of what Pope Francis has been saying lately. Moss speculate that's what church traditionalists must be anxiously wondering after the pontiff used a lengthy interview last week to question the Vatican's, quote, obsession, unquote, with sexual morality. Expanding on his famous Who Am I to Judge line on homosexuality, Pope Francis said the church, quote, cannot insist only on issues related to abortion, gay marriage, and the use of contraceptive methods. Referring with evident disdain to, quote, authoritarian, unquote, decision-making and, quote, small-minded rules, unquote. Well, I can't believe this is a fallen Catholic. This is a pope I think I like. And apparently, um, unlike our current president of the United States, this pope is willing to actually do something to back up what he says. 
This week, Pope Francis demoted an ultra-conservative U.S. cardinal who outspokenly disagreed with his attempts to focus the church less on issues like abortion and more on spreading the faith and caring for the poor. Cardinal Raymond Burke was removed from the body that helps choose bishops after giving an interview questioning the Pope's views. Said Burke, he thinks we're talking too much about abortion, too much about the integrity of marriages between one man and one woman, but we can never talk enough about that. Burke, the former Archbishop of St. Louis, is best known for saying back in 2004 that he would deny communion to then-presidential candidate John Kerry because Kerry was pro-choice. All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for sour grapes after a jealous Walmart worker in Florida was charged with shooting a hole in his co-worker's SUV after she was named Employee of the Month, <laughs> said the local sheriff. It's now clear why the perpetrator wasn't chosen as Employee of the Month. And now we'll need some appropriate music for this item, Mr. McMillan. Yes, according to the week, it was a bad week last week for James Bond after British scientists analyzed the vast amounts of alcohol quaffed by the super spy in Ian Fleming's novels. They concluded the 007 would probably have developed alcoholic liver disease, cirrhosis, and even erectile dysfunction and would probably have been dead by age 56. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for Romanian Christmas carols. And this we're going to have to quote from uh, the week's reprint of a column by Horia Gibutiu, writing, I presume, in Bucharest. Said Gibutiu, burning Jews is not part of traditional Romanian Christmas. Yet somehow, as part of a Christmas music special last week, a state-run television channel broadcast a choir singing the most hateful song imaginable. Quote, the kikes, damn kikes, holy God would not leave the kike alive neither in heaven nor in earth, only in the chimney as smoke. That's what the kike is good for. Noted Gibutiu that such dirt was broadcast is scandal enough, but the, quote, justification, unquote, and explanations that followed were beyond grotesque. The channel, TVR3, gave a lame apology and buck-passing excuse, saying it wasn't responsible for selecting the carols and noting that the song in question was chosen because it was short and never before been played on television. Said Gibutiu, I wonder why. She went on to say that fortunately the entire episode may have an unintended consequence of turning anyone who may have lacked an opinion on this delicate subject into an outspoken pro-Semite. She notes the true traditions of Romania developed through the intersection of several ethnicities, Romanians, Hungarians, Germans, and Jews. In past times, we all had coexisted in a civilized manner. This is the way it should be now, and not only at Christmas time. Well, we hope that Horia Gibutio is right about that, and we certainly have to apologize for the actions of Romanian TV channel TVR3. Good God. All right, on a uh, more cheery note, Let's examine a column a little closer to home. This is from Steve Wigand, writing a special piece to the Bee last weekend, titled, Why We Need an Arena, dot, 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 give me a moment, will ya? 
The piece was accompanied by an artist conception of a king's crowd at the Planned Arena. And in this artist conception, everybody looks terminally hip. <laughs> Wigan commented, apparently only 30-somethings will be attending games. But he weighs in by saying, I, I wasn't going to weigh in on this arena vote controversy, mainly because I know very little about it, and also because I don't really care what happens. But he says, since neither of these reasons has stopped anyone else from spiting veritable fountains of gibberish, I took several minutes to carefully analyze both sides of the issue. <clears throat> As a result, I'm ready to come down firmly on the side of those who want to bypass the electorate and build this puppy. Here are four reasons why. One, Sacramento needs the Kings. If we don't build a new arena, the Kings will leave for another city. This, I don't have to tell the sensible reader, would be a disaster. I was here before the Kings came to town. It was pretty grim. If you wanted to spend more than 100 bucks to watch a professional sport played at a mediocre level, you had to drive to the Bay Area. If you wanted a cup of Starbucks, you had to drive to Seattle. Movies were viewable only in 2D. Then the Kings arrived in 1985, and look at us now. Say you want to spend $120 on December 23rd. Why, you can get two tickets to the last row of Sleep Train Arena, a place to park, two hot dogs, and two small domestic beers. And did I mention you also get to see the Sacramento Kings play the New Orleans Pelicans? <laughs> At least one of which apparently is an authentic basketball team. There are now 61 Starbucks in the Sacramento area. And you can not only watch a movie in 3D, you can watch it in something called High FR 3D. Coincidence? I think not. If the Kings left, it's pretty clear that all Sacramento would have left would be its climate, its proximity to numerous scenic wonders in nearly every direction, its relatively low cost of housing, its dependable water supply, and a stable publicly owned utility company, and maybe just a dozen or so other positive attributes. If the Kings left, Sacramento would become just another city without an NBA team, like San Diego. Reason two, a new arena is a great investment. As I understand it, there's no better investment a city can make than a building that benefits a private enterprise. Sacramento taxpayers would put up about $300 million by borrowing against future parking revenues and maybe hotel tax revenues that we also haven't collected yet. Then we pay only interest on the loans for eight years, and then principal for another 30 years or so, which means that when the new arena is paid off, it will be ours free and clear, and we can immediately begin building a brand new arena. Well, that's if we haven't already done so. Reason three, voting on a new arena is a needless waste of money. It's been estimated that just counting the signatures turned in to force the public vote could cost $100,000. This money could be better used to pay the $17.9 million salary of new Kings player Rudy Gay for nearly five games. In addition, it should be pointed out that many of those signatures were gathered with the financial backing of out-of-town interests. Outrageous! What kind of precedent are we setting if we allow special interest money to play a role in politics? Clearly, the controversy surrounding the, quote, suspect money, unquote, should supersede any discussion of whether a vote is merited. Which brings me to my last point. Number four, voters are idiots and might reject the proposal. Says Wigan, Sacramento's government is based on the idea of representative democracy. The members of the city council were elected by us because we believed they would make well-reasoned decisions, and not just because there wasn't anyone better running. We should have every confidence they will not be blinded by personal ambition or desires to leave an egotistical monument to themselves while leaving taxpayers with the bill years from now. The new arena proposal is a vastly complicated issue with potentially significant economic repercussions for us all. It requires intense scrutiny, careful consideration, and well-reasoned action. 
Isn't that precisely the kind of issue his decision we should leave to someone else? Bravo, Mr. Wigan. Bravo. All right, let's do a couple of Christmas-related items. Apparently, down in San Diego, which I did not realize does not have an NBA franchise, I don't know how it can aspire to being a world-class city, a federal judge has ordered that a giant cross that has stood atop Mount Soledad since 1954 be removed in the next 90 days. U.S. District Judge Larry Burns said that the 43-foot cross, erected in honor of Korean War veterans and one of the city's most visible landmarks, violates the Constitution's provisions for the separation of church and state. They've been fighting over this since 1989, apparently, when a couple of Vietnam vets filed suit saying it violated California's No Preference Clause. Jewish war veterans and the ACLU also filed suit, arguing the display is a public endorsement of a specific religion. You know, I gotta say, I'm just, I'm just not that offended by a cross on a hilltop. Now, putting the Ten Commandments on the grounds of the state capitol building like they have in Oklahoma, uh, that's, that's a little wacky. Now, oddly enough, back in uh, 2002, the Oki legislature, can I say that? I believe so. <laughs> passed a bill ordering that a monument version of the Ten Commandments, which it cites as an important component of the moral foundation of the laws and legal system of the U.S. and of the state of Oklahoma, should be placed on the grounds of its state capitol. The bill specified that Oklahoma would not pay for the monument. The bill's sponsor and his family donated it to the state. It was erected on the Capitol's north side last year in November of 2012, and there it still stands. Now, apparently the Supreme Court in 2005 ruled that uh, in a similar case down in Texas, Van Orden versus Perry, the Ten Commandments, quote, have an undeniable historical meaning, unquote, as well as a religious one. It also found that a message does not violate the First Amendment's prohibition on, quote, an establishment of religion, unquote, simply because it has some religious content. <laughs> right. I think I see Anthony Scalia behind this one. Noted The Economist magazine, the Oklahoma chapter of the ACLU was not convinced, and last August it sued Oklahoma, not for violating the U.S. Constitution, but for violating a section of Oklahoma's, which forbids using public property to support any system of religion directly or indirectly. Magazine notes, and that was just the start of the trouble. On December 2nd of this year, the Satanic Temple, an organization based in New York, launched a campaign to donate a monument of its own to be placed next to the Ten Commandments. It promised the monument would be, quote, public-friendly, unquote, and something children could play on. Lucian Greaves, a spokesman for the Satanic Temple, so the organization has received a huge outpouring of support from folks in Oklahoma and sees no reason why the design, due to be revealed this week, should be rejected. Go to the magazine, yet if Oklahoma chooses to reject the monument, a very small if, Oklahoma believes it has Supreme Court support for that too. In Pleasant Grove versus Summum, the court unanimously ruled that a city need not allow displays from one religion just because it has already permitted a display from another. So the Oklahomans may yet keep the devil at bay. Since next year marks uh, the 100th anniversary of the start of World War I, probably the second most brutal and senseless war in world history, we should look back at one curious episode that took place during Christmas in 1914. Apparently, on Christmas Eve, British soldiers recovering the bodies of their dead comrades in Belgium noticed that the Germans were decorating their trenches and singing the Christmas carol, Silent Night, in German. 
The Brits then sang, O come all ye faithful, in response. And then one of the Germans challenged one of us to go over for a bottle of wine, wrote a soldier. One of our soldiers accepted the challenge and took a big cake to exchange. Soldiers who hours earlier were trying to kill each other shook hands, wished each other a Merry Christmas, and were soon conversing as if they'd known each other for years. That's according to a report by a Corporal John Ferguson. The festivities evidently spread across the front line and continued into Christmas Day. More remarkably, apparently several impromptu games of soccer broke out across no man's land with soldiers kicking either an actual ball or empty corned beef cans. That's noted this was not a universal truce uh, by any means. Some of the combatants actively disapproved. A Scottish regiment uh, commander, Major John Hawksley, said that uh, the Seaforths, his regiment, would have none of it. And when the Germans in front of them tried to fraternize and leave their trenches, the Seaforths warned them they would shoot. So that one Austrian-born soldier on the other side uh, uh, thought the fraternizing with the enemy was disgraceful. Corporal Adolf Hitler said such things should not happen in wartime, according to one of his comrades in the 16th Bavarians. Hitler asked, have you Germans no sense of honor left at all? It was noting in a briefing in the Week magazine that this truce ended as civilly as it had begun. German troops took the trouble to send notes to their British counterparts warning that hostilities were about to resume. Gentlemen, our automatic pistol has been ordered from the colonel to begin firing again at midnight. We take it an honor to award you of this fact. Not surprising that military leaders on both sides of this event opposed this fraternization and ordered heavy artillery, machine gun, and sniper fire on Christmas Day to discourage any further festive meetings. And even those who took place in the truce recognized the occasion was a fleeting moment of kinship unlikely to be experienced again, wrote Private Frederick Heath. As I finish this short and scrappy description of a strangely human event, we are pouring rapid fire into German trenches and they are returning the compliment just as fiercely. So we are back once more to the ordeal of fire. And somewhat surprisingly, even in World War II, a parallel event took place, although it was uh, tiny by comparison. The week noted that um, a German woman named Elizabeth Vinken engineered a truce of her own on Christmas Eve in 1944. When she opened her cabin, which was on the Belgian-German border, she found three lost Americans, one of them badly injured. She took pity on them and invited them in for Christmas dinner. But as the turkey was roasting, there was another knock on the door. To Elizabeth's dismay, four German soldiers wanted to be let in. The penalty for harboring the enemy was execution. But Elizabeth calmly told them there were Americans inside. The Germans were welcome to join them, she said, as long as they left their weapons outside. She said, it is the holy night and there will be no shooting here. The cabin atmosphere was described as tense, but after dinner and wine, relations warmed. One German, an ex-medical student, examined the wounded American. Another gave them directions back to their lines. They parted ways, and the truce was over. It is nice to know that even in the worst of conditions, Christmas can sometimes bring out the best in us. Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.